Goal number one of the 17 United Nations Sustainability Goals is to eliminate poverty. No poverty. The statement couldn't be simpler, but what does this mean? In a world that's dealing with increasing health and political crises, how are we doing with this priority goal? Where does one start with such a task? What even is poverty? How is it defined? And how does one measure something so abstract? To help answer these questions and more are Jamie Coates, the President and CEO of Wise Responder, and City's Head of Sustainable Finance from within the Global Insights team, Jason Chanel. Welcome to Good Things Happen, where we will discuss the challenge to eliminate global poverty. Welcome, Jamie. Please tell us a bit about yourself. Who and what is Wise Responder? So, hello, I'm Jamie Coates, uh, the CEO of Wise Responder. We're a data analytics business that came out of Oxford University. Um, we're specialists in the measurement of poverty by its multiple dimensions, health, education, assets, employment, and safety. And our speciality is looking at actually what is the composition of poverty as opposed to just looking at it just through money. Um, I talk about this as the minion view of the world, and there are three types of little minions, you know, those little characters. There's a minion with no eyes, the people who basically don't care. Um, there's a minion with one eye who just looked at money and just said, money, 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 how much is in your bank account? There's a minion with two eyes who's smart enough to say, yes, I'm still looking through money because that's really important, but I'm also looking at the multiple dimensions. I'm looking at you as a human being, and what does a human being mean? In our world is about health, education, assets, and safety. And what's exciting is the city is looking at the world through two eyes. They're looking at it through investment and they're looking at what's happening for the human beings. And we bring that analytics. How do you actually count uh, what is the composition of health, education, assets? A little test you can do. If, if any of you've got kids and you've got students, you can ask a student, are you multidimensionally rich? Like, do you have a nice place to go to university? Can you go home to bed? Are you have an education? Do you have healthcare and so on? But do you, how much money do you have in your bank account? And students, unlike most people in the world, are multidimensionally rich but cash poor. The rest of the world, it's typically the other way around. And so it's really important to understand the multiple dimensions of it, to see the world in two eyes. And where City is not just counting money, they're actually counting three things these days. They're counting money, carbon, and they're counting well-being units, which is reducing multidimensional poverty. And so we've been having this conversation about how when you look with those lens, uh, you can look at risk, you can look at connecting investment where it's needed, you're looking to make a better difference. Wow. Uh, let's hear from Jason. Jason, tell us about your role within City. How would you define your responsibility? Thanks, Jorian, and, and lovely to be here with you both today. My role is a, a bit of a different one to what most people would think of from within a bank. I mean, my background is very much as a financial analyst. So as Jamie said, I do sort of originally come from this from a financial perspective. But the part of the bank that I look after, uh, City Global Insights, and, and within that, the sustainability team, really, it's kind of like a, an internal think tank. So we're responsible for producing all of the key thought leadership uh, for the bank. Uh, and the majority of that comes out through one product series which is called the GPS products and that's what we worked on with Jamie and his organisation at Oxford. They cover 
everything really. Um, they're easy to find on the internet. There's no paywall or anything. You just Google City GPS. But the the remit for City GPS is that it is designed to tackle the biggest challenges and opportunities facing the global economy, the planet, and and society over the coming decades. So it's a pretty pretty broad remit. So we we look at everything from you know as Jamie said, climate change and carbon to uh, other environmental things like you know uh, so so water down to the built environment infrastructure things like that but um, um, but we also kind of very much focus on the S in ESG so that is obviously poverty which we're talking about today um, but within that it's the other kind of UN sustainable development goals you know the the education and the health and things like that so uh, we also recognize what we don't know which is why it's wonderful to have the opportunity to work with people like Jamie so you know we will go out and we will find the world's leading experts in whatever we're looking at because it's very important that we recognize where our expertise ends and and where we need somebody else that, that's an expert in, in in something else so so we uh, we produce a lot of that stuff um the reach of this is pretty extraordinary we take that through to to governments to uh you know to sovereigns to ministries as well as to supranational organizations like the un and to corporates all, all around the world as well as institutional investors around the world so we we work with all the clients of of city and all the different parts of city so the unique privilege i guess for us is that very often in the world of finance, you tend to be a little bit siloed and you'll deal with one bit of that. But uh, we get to talk to the people who've got the money, that are trying to deploy the money, and I'm sure we'll come on to this later. They're often very frustrated in that it's not that the money's not there, but they want to deploy it, but the vehicles aren't there to deploy it. Uh, and very much with the people on the other side, whether it's you know emerging market sovereigns or corporates or whatever who are trying to access the money and obviously a bit confused that they can't find out what the blockages are. And, and that's what these sort of debates and partnerships are, are designed designed to help break down, to increase the understanding and then break down the barriers. So you're working together to open ears, are you? These are people who are seeking your help to break down this mind-boggling goal of uh, eliminating poverty. You're not lobbying them, you're not hectoring them, you're not challenging them. Nope. No, there's no agenda from that perspective, right? It's that they're all clients of the firm, right? And many of them have been clients for a very, very long time. You know, we've been around for more than 200 years. And, and I mean, one of the big sort of drivers behind the recent kind of push or, or, or levels of interest in these kind of subjects is obviously the rise of, of sustainable finance and, and ESG, right? You know, this isn't a niche activity out there anymore. I mean, we can debate the numbers, but, you know, there's 35 or $40 trillion of assets under management now that is being ESG screened. You've got the signatories to the UN-backed principles of responsible investment, that's north of $100 trillion. If we look at COP26 in Glasgow last year, the, the people that signed up to GFANS, uh, which was the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, now not all of that money is going to be put towards Net Zero, but what they're responsible for is north of $130 trillion, right? So it's actually the majority of, of capital out there in markets now, which is wanting to consider these other dimensions. You know, in the past, we used to look at this stuff and say, well, I have my fiduciary duty, and if I think about sort of social and, and, and environmental duties, then there's some kind of trade-off in there with the financial returns. And I think we've moved on from that now, recognising that these things are material factors of risk and opportunity, and actually to not include them would be a dereliction of fiduciary duty. So so this is all very much in the mainstream now. And as I say, it's that, yes, investors want a financial return, but they also want to, you know, they want to understand what they're doing with the money. What are they achieving 
with the money and trying to report back to those ultimate asset owners about what I've done with your money, right? What have I, you know, what's the other stuff? Have I haven't just given you some extra money back? What have you done with it? What impact have you had on the world? And I think that's where things like the multidimensional poverty index, exactly, because it allows you to sort of demonstrate that and help to raise the capital, but prove what you're doing. And is this where you come in? Yeah. So first of all, I mean, poverty exists and it causes issues and problems. So it's already there and people know it's there. Um, one of the great things I've heard from City is we don't have the measurements that are reporting the actual health on the ground. And I'm going to give you two particular stories. In 2019, the Minister of Social Progress from Chile goes to the United Nations and she puts up two numbers on the screen. The number of people in Chile who are poor by financial measures, 1.5 million. And then she puts up the number of people who are poor by Chile's multidimensional poverty metric, 3.5 million. In October, the finance ministry puts a 20% fare rise on the Santiago subway system and you have near revolution. You've now got constitutional revision. You've got a 36-year-old socialist president in a high-income country. And that's where looking at the multidimensional numbers, you can tell that was a massive problem there. So that's on the risk side. If you're looking about the investment side, um, with City, I was talking to a finance minister in the country, and we were talking about nitty gritty. I mean, he raised the thing. He said, you know, investors want to know specifically where the money's going. Is it going, you know, in, in this case, into a school in a particular area? Um, and he made a really interesting point, uh, which is that he would not include in any bond deal any investment unless he knew there was the reporting that could report back on the bond and on the SDGs. So what he's saying is, if I have reporting that can report on that, I get access to capital. And if I don't, I won't do it. And the word nitty gritty, investors are looking all the way through. So how do you come up with metrics that are real? Uh, and, you know, it amuses me. You, I, 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 I was absolutely floored when I walked into a meeting with debt capital management at City, and, and the guy walks in and says, actually, I want to know if this will make a difference in a real person's life. Well, to go from an asset manager down to a real person's life and back up again, what metrics do that? Or are we just making up numbers that we invent in financial markets? And, and what the multidimensional done is, is that thanks to Oxford University, who spent more than a decade traveling around all the developed countries in the world, they have gone through and listened at each country's level what is the composition of poverty? So you've got locally determined metrics in an internationally recognized framework. So you're not just showing up and saying, I'm telling you what to do. The amazing thing is you can show up in a country and say, guess what? You've done the hard work. You've set all these criteria. We can work with you to meet the goals that you have there available. And I think this is incredibly important because there is a really thorny issue that's potentially going to blow up our world. And it goes something like this. Carbon emissions we need to reduce. And it turns out that the single most important indicator for pulling people out of poverty, Oxford and the Rockefeller Foundation did a report, is energy access. And of course, the fastest way to get energy access has been through hydrocarbons. So you've got countries that want to pull people out of poverty. And you've got the world wanting people not to develop, and we need the world not to develop more hydrocarbons. But how do you get people out of poverty? And if you just say net zero, if you do what The Economist says, which is only emissions matter, well, 
you know, if you're trying to get reelected, I assure you, on the ground in South Africa or Colombia or whatever, you're going to have to promise that people come out of poverty. Otherwise, you're not going to get reelected. So if you don't put P0 next to net zero, we're not going to get there. And so I call myself a democratic environmentalist. So there's a conflict between protecting the planet and protecting people. How does one wrestle that? You, you both sound so optimistic about a thing that sounds intractable to me. I mean, yes and no, right? You, you know, if you, if you look at all of the SDGs, right, the UN SDGs, there are some sort of classic destructive or negative feedback loops within them, right? One of the ones that we've been talking a lot about recently is, uh, and it's obviously a very, very topical issue, but is, is uh, food insecurity and, and hunger, right? Now, uh, we've got, what, seven and a half odd billion people on the planet at the moment. We're going to have uh, 10 billion by mid-century. And yet what most people don't realize is that around about a third of emissions come from the food system right so uh can we feed 10 billion people yeah we can feed 10 billion people but you're you're not gonna you're not gonna get to net zero so there are negative influences and and positive feedback loops and negative feedback loops between all of the goals right but it doesn't mean that they are in any way mutually exclusive what it means as jamie's trying to say is that is that one has to think about them in a holistic sense and there's very little point in achieving one uh, if you push another one back by by miles, and you, you'll often hear people use the phrase, you know, all roads lead to SDG one, right? The eradication of poverty, and it's not an accident that it's the first one, as you said right at the beginning, right? Because they all feed into that, whether it's access to water or education or health or housing or uh, jobs or political representation or gender equality or, or whatever. You know, these are all factors that, if you don't have it, can be a form of multi-dimensional poverty. So they do all feed into this thing. So it's obviously much, much harder to achieve all of them in a sort of of a positive symbiotic kind of way right but it doesn't mean it's uh, impossible and and I would argue as well that actually if you achieve one at the expense of the others as Jamie's saying well it's it's not sustainable right I and I don't mean sustainable in the conceptual sense I mean in the in the dictionary sense of the word right because giving everyone access to a doctor and nothing to eat right because uh, <laughs> you know this is not going to work right it's a silly example but you know it won't work if you just do one right you've got to do them all the approach that we've brought mathematically models the composition of health, education and assets. And that's important because uh, you can then set baselines and see movement against it. Now, um, I, I heard the CEO of one company said, when you get this data back and you really see it, if you aren't depressed, you aren't human. But what you need to know is once you've got a baseline, you can make incremental improvement and see that. And, and what the work that Oxford's done uh, and we are bringing to the private sector is now you can mathematically model that and therefore you can begin to see the implications and you can begin to see the, the difference. And it's down to very specific things. I mean, the indicators that countries pick, they're limited. So you have focus because if you have too many, you won't focus. But they're actionable. You know, it is about water into a particular village. It is about uh, extending the amount of education. And you can begin to see very specific things. So one of the things that's been learned is that if people are education deprived, uh, microfinance can be a really powerful way of helping people who have less education, therefore less access to formal economy, of being able to you know, be more prosperous um, by getting learning through the support that comes through the microfinance. So you begin to see how you can tackle things, but you've got to be specific. And I think what's exciting is that the environmental world has modelled 
uh, a way of creating metrics. So literally, you know, someone like Jason does count in money and carbon now. And what we now need to bring is a real clarity around counting in the S and not to give up on that. And the methodology, this uh, calculation uh, that Professor Sabina Alkaya and James Foster created, the Alkaya-Foster method, allows you to take these multiple things and mathematically model them. And that sounds sophisticated, but I mean, countries like uh, Colombia, Costa Rica, uh, India now actually use these to look at their own budgets, their budget allocations. Um, it's a really powerful way of saying, OK, we're poor in our country because of education or lack of water or whatever it is, and we're going to focus in there. So we've got these tools. They are now available. They can be combined and they can be combined in a way that, as Jason put it, is holistic and realistic on the ground. The way I tend to think about it is there's a kind of antithesis of the fabled helicopter drop. You know, we could debate the, the efficacy of that for, for a long time, but, but, you know, it's not actually going to change anything, right? And this is, I think, the whole point behind what Jamie's team are trying to do so brilliantly. The monetary figure, and I think it's being updated later this year, but, but that's been used uh, by the UN for years is less than $1.90 a day, which, you know, there's still north of 700 million people in the world that exist on that. And, you know, most of us will go out and spend that on a coffee without even thinking about it. You know, it really does make you sort of pause and think about this. But the reality is, if you suddenly put somebody to, to a lot more than that financially a day, but they still don't have education or health or somewhere to live or water or electricity you know, how, how much does that improve things? So, you know, as Jamie said, you can really get to the root of defining exactly what poverty is in a multidimensional sense. It means that you can look at all of these things. And one of these things we did in the report with Jamie's team as well was to look at the, so the, the economic multiplier effects as well. And they're going to be different everywhere around the world, but which is to say, right, if I spend a dollar on that, and if I do it effectively, uh, then theoretically I can drive, you know, that many dollars of, of impact because it ripples through the economy, right? And that's going to come in different ways and different multiplier effects in different parts of the world. But you can sort of, as I say, do the antithesis of your helicopter drop. You can actually target it at what's the root cause of the poverty, what delivers the biggest bang for buck, you know, and you can either go for bang for buck or you can go biggest social impact or a mixture of both, right? Uh, and ultimately you hope they're the same thing. And I think one thing we haven't mentioned, which is important to mention, is that, you know, obviously it helps you to understand what you need to spend money on. It helps you to track it, as Jamie was saying, with a with a baseline. But also it also helps you to report on it, which is what the capital wants. And it allows you to harness some of these new financial instruments, which are really quite innovative. So we've seen the rise of green bonds. We've now seen the rise of sustainability and social bonds as well. But there's also new instruments like KPI-linked bonds out. So the, effectively, the cost of that capital will actually change depending on the achievement or or not of particular metrics. And something like a multidimensional poverty index, um, potentially, you know, it gives you that KPI. And it works financially because you're saying, right, if I lend money into this country, let's say, or a city or whatever, and the thing that is really holding back the economic development there or, or political or social development is this thing, if this money is directed towards that, that will theoretically boost growth, it will reduce risk, uh, you know, the cost of capital reduces with that lower risk and it allows the investors who are frustrated they've got the capital they want to deploy it but they can't to get that capital in and it, and it allows you to potentially get the capital to where it's needed where it can make uh, the biggest difference to people's lives yeah I mean people will say well our most important asset is our people okay well let's 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 have a look at that from Jason's perspective so our question is can you bank on well-being and let me take that apart a little bit I, I mean that in can you actually change people's lives 
you know, you get loyalty, you get the ability to be prosperous on the ground. And then, you know, is that data good enough that you can connect to this capital in the market? And I think what's really interesting is what's changing in all of this. If you if you focus on banking and well-being and we get the statistics that can be verified and a high enough quality, that this goes from not being a social cost to actually being lowering your cost of capital. So actually the infrastructure, not only does it make people feel good on the ground, build loyalty and so on and report, but actually potentially lowers your costs and gives you easier cost of capital. Because the capital is there wanting to make a difference. But as Jason said, what's the connection? Our role is this actually really difficult place to be, which is, you know, let's say uh, you're a business and you're supporting a mom and pop corner store and you need to ask questions about the social capital there and uh, you're in a business that's borrowing from the markets and the bankers want data to do that what is that data that can flow um, and what is the value exchange at both ends so what's the value for people providing that data what's reporting and wise responder is in the middle of it of saying okay this is a locally determined set of indicators that are relevant to that family that's running that corner business um, but it's in a framework that you can actually compare for the bankers because they want global comparability people on the ground want exact context for their situation and that tension has to be managed. Imagine you show up after a tsunami and your job is to help everybody there but I'm going to take away one thing from you. I'm not going to allow you to have any cash in your pocket. So you've got to barter all these helpful people. It's going to be really, really slow how you help these people. Now, if I take you there with some cash and you carefully use it, it makes a difference. And I think in the social metrics framework, uh, that hasn't been a common set of measurement until today. I think what cities looked around the world and said, well, where is it? And they've discovered that countries in emerging markets have been putting through their national planning offices and their legislatures multidimensional poverty measures in the framework that Oxford created and realized that there is actually a currency there. And I think what we'll see emerge is a set of measures. There won't be one global measure. I'll give you an example why. The acute measure set with standards that the UNDP and Oxford set covers about 127 countries and then it goes to zero, acute poverty. Uh, and then if you go to a particular country, I'll use Colombia, which has a new president. Uh, they have a very well-developed multidimensional measure. It was the framework of that measure that actually framed much of the election. And within three days of being in office, he came out with his plan with goals to lower multidimensional poverty. Interestingly, that had all been developed under more right-leaning governments um, because this is actually about a functional pragmatism. And so you've now got the ability to create a social metric that can be used across the world. And the environment has now created that with net zero and that's becoming standardized. And what we now need to work together on is using the social metrics in a similar way. It's a really interesting point that James was brought up as well, right? We, we mustn't fall into the trap of thinking this is just an emerging market thing. There is an awful lot of poverty around the world, and, and particularly if one thinks about this correctly in a multidimensional sense, right? Because, you know, you can be in a comparatively rich country, but it could be the slightly less tangible things, like a lack of political representation. I mean, it could be the tangible things like housing or, or, or etc. Or it could be those sort of, you know, social basics like access to education or, or healthcare. But, you know, we could have an awful lot of, and there are an awful lot of people around the world who exist on a lot more than, you know, $1.90 a day. If you take the other monetary lines, if you take the upper poverty line, 
and it's it's five dollars fifty a day. Jamie will correct me, but I think that's about forty five percent of the world's population lives on less. It's, it's extraordinary, right? This is not a niche thing that that is very easy for people to sort of fall into a trap. You know, they have a mental image of an emerging market country somewhere, and 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 it's very much a concentrated thing. Now, extreme poverty is concentrated, but it is far more prevalent than, than people think. And a metric like this allows us to to tackle it in all sorts of different countries. It may be much easier to raise capital uh, in some of those countries, but it, in a way it doesn't make the personal situation of the people that benefit from it you know, any, any less pressing, right? We've talked about governments, we've talked about private sector, we've talked about banks being part of this goal. I would like to bring it right down to individuals. I'm sure we will have listeners who are kind of fascinated by the jobs that you both do. And I'd love some insight into how you both got into the work that you do. Jason, I know you did engineering, science and management. How did you get involved in the work that you're doing now? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I did. I then sort of flipped from engineering into uh, finance, but my original engineering activities had an energy focus. And I've done a lot of sectors, uh, industries over the years, uh, but again, probably more of a focus on energy than anything else. And that's sort of really how I kind of ended up doing this because I was in the E of ESG, if you like, and around about um, it's frightening to think how long it is now, but about 20 years ago, I flipped over just as the, the alternative energy thing was really starting to build up. And I built one of the sort of first franchises out there looking at alternative energy and clean tech back in the in the early 2000s. So so I've kind of been the E in ESG, if you like, for a very, very long time, but very much coming at it from a, from a financial perspective about how did one integrate this properly into the investment process. You know, there's nothing wrong with the sort of sustainability principled side of things, but where I think the industry has struggled over the last couple of decades has been, you know, there's been a lot of people that speak sustainability and a lot of people that speak finance and not many people that, you know, speak both. I kind of slightly fell into ESG, I guess, from that perspective, from an interest in the clean energy side, uh, and then broadened out into ESG and eventually stopped covering stocks financially, partly because of the structure that we have in financial markets. You know, we were very close to institutional investors, but as I said right at the beginning, we weren't having that debate in such a powerful way with corporates and with sovereigns. So we created a new unit here called City Global Insights, which is pretty unique in the market where we're still on the public side, but you know, we speak to investors, we speak to corporates, we speak to sovereigns, we speak to, you know, supranationals like the UN, etc. And and you can see the whole picture, but then we also get to work closely with, you know, brilliant minds around the world like Jamie and, and you know, various other people we've uh, worked closely with on these other reports as well. So I absolutely love my job. And I think one of the things about finance is it's very easy for people to look at, you know, big bad banks and, you know, evil finance and markets and those kind of things. And it's, um, you know, within a bank, there's there's thousands and thousands of different types of jobs, right? And, and uh, you know, banks and finance can be an enormous force for good, right? And yes, one has to be mindful of that and making sure that you you are doing that and moving the bank towards that we're very much trying to do that but you know I think it's it's maybe not people's first port of call to think well I want to make a difference I'll go and work for a bank but I mean you you genuinely can right and I would argue that's what the big difference with for example Paris was with 2015 right it was yes the world was moving that way but the big difference there was that the money was in the room because it had suddenly woken up to the concept of of the risk of stranded assets if done correctly money can be an enormous force for good. 
Jamie, I, w I want you to tell your story. Uh, I read somewhere that you said you, you're now focused on supporting practical steps to support the least in the world. What drove you to that? Tell us your story that led you to do what you do now. I love to solve complex problems. Um, and I also love talking with people from different backgrounds. I began life with an organisation called Business in the Community in the UK that began after the rats in the UK. Um, I had this amazing training what I began to realize is if you can pull people together, uh, you can make a difference. Um, and so I've spent my life doing that, pulling people across different sectors and saying, can we solve something? Um, and then suddenly this world exists of the internet uh, and communication where it becomes a lot easier to do that. And the problem then is what is the imagination of how we use this to really make a difference? And so I've been really interested in seeing how we can do that. So that, that's what motivates me. It's exciting. I, I think we've got new ways of doing stuff in the world that we didn't have before. And we've got new ways of listening and putting it back together. Um, and I'll just come back to the holistic thing. The bankers are smart enough that they actually want the total theory of everything because they want to take the risk out of everything and just be rich. And they keep looking at their models and their models are telling them, oh, well, hang on a minute, the risk went wrong. So they go and look and, and they've gone to look at gender. I mean, Citigroup has done an amazing job. With that. They've gone to look at biomass. They've gone to look and now they're looking at poverty and it comes back. You know, the systems don't report correctly because they're not measuring risk. And Citi's actually used its nose to realise that uh, under the global theory of everything, it's become a really interesting place. And they're using their analytical discipline to put it all back together again. And, and that's what I'm excited about. And that's why it's a real pleasure to work with them. And I get to tease them that, you know, my job is to corrupt the bankers to care about the poor, but actually they're already there because on the total theory of removing risk, they're already there. And, and that's what's so fun about it. You know, one of the big drivers of why we're doing this is it's our clients, right? These are the challenges and things that are facing us, right? In in terms of, you know, people want to look after their money in different ways or access to different ways or our client base might be very different in future in the retail bank. But also, uh, you know, the, the challenges that corporates are going to face over the next 20 or 30 years are going to be very different. And so are they going to be for countries as well, right? So what happens with globalization? You know, what happens with supply chains? What impact does net zero have? We've written reports in the past looking at inequality as well and some people look at it and go well why on earth is a global investment bank writing about inequality and it's like well firstly because it matters right but this stuff matters not just to the people that are suffering from from inequality but it also matters from uh, a corporate perspective from political stability from economic growth right it, it impacts all of these things right so you know it absolutely is and should be our bread and butter in terms of understanding this and and trying to root it out because it's you know, it's a benefit to us, but it's a benefit to all of our customers as well. So so I think some of these things, people look at it and go, well, why are you straying into that? When you really break it down and think about it, it should be our bread and butter. Progressive capitalism, you know, is there to find new markets and create more prosperity. And that means bringing people out of poverty. And what's nice is that City remains true to that. And We've got new tools to do that. We've got new middle classes to create. There are paths that you can now zero in on and uh, support the transitions down those particular paths to that. A bank the size of City has got an extraordinary set of knowledge that it, it can actually bring 
multi-dimensional approaches to multi-dimensional problems and not be simplistic uh, about it. So they can be sophisticated rather than simplistic and they can be targeted and accurate about that. At the start of this conversation, I thought it was such a daunting subject of eliminating poverty, but thank you so much for reassuring me that there are ways of measuring it, there are ways of defining it, and that individuals can genuinely make a difference. Uh, Thank you so much, Jamie. Thank you, Jason, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of Citigroup Global Markets, Inc. or its affiliates. All opinions are subject to change without notice. Neither the information provided nor any opinion expressed constitutes a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. The expressions of opinion are not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. Citibank NA and Wise Responder are not affiliated and are independent companies. The speakers' views are their own and may not necessarily reflect the views of Citi or of any of its affiliates. (laughs) 